We do praise you, Father. You are incredible, awesome, glorious, worthy of all of our praise and honor. Um, we're here to praise you and to seek you because we need you. And you truly are the delight of our soul and the answer to all of our questions. So we come to you this morning and ask that you'd teach us, teach us from your word. Uh, help us. We're so prone to drifting. Help us to make you the anchor of our soul and to stay the course. And teach us from your word about that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, page 817 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. It's our gift to you. And uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews, uh, verse by verse. Today we are at drifting can be hazardous to your health because a couple of the words in our passage are actually nautical terms. I thought it would be good to see a little illustration about boats drifting and how that can be hazardous to your health. So let's go ahead and watch this. Trzymaj się. Drifting can be hazardous to your health, okay? You get the, get the point? All right. God calls us as believers to go against the flow. The world is going in one direction. He's calling us to go against the flow. That does take effort, and that's what we'll see in our passage, this tendency to drift. Look at our passage, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoke, spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? If we ignore so great a salvation, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here we see the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. If you remember, as we've uh, already talked about, how the book of Hebrews was written to a group of churches that were predominantly Jewish believers who were also being tempted to go back to Judaism because of the persecution that they were experiencing. We see in the whole book that the author of Hebrews, his strategy is to first show how superior Jesus is in other words, here's Jesus. Why would you want to turn your back on him? How great he is. But then interspersed through these parts of the supremacy of Christ, he puts these warning passages. And if you don't follow through and stick with Jesus, this is what happens. Okay, so these are definitely warning passages. There are questions that will come up as we walk through these warning passages. Are they for warnings to Christians, or are they warnings to non-Christians? Are they uh, warnings of loss of salvation, or are they warnings of loss of reward? How are we to understand these things? I think as we go through the different warning passages, those questions will be made clear. One thing I want to say from the beginning as we look at these is that we need to try to think like they thought in the original audience, okay? We don't read this passage so much as a 21st century American, okay? We are rampant individualists here, okay? It's just the way we're grown up. It's all about me, my focus on, you know, this guy, right? Okay, that's how we think. A bunch of individuals, and that's how we think. That is not how they thought in the biblical times, uh, the way they saw things was far more of a corporate identity. There is very truly the idea that individually I must personally receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But when they're speaking, and I believe this is helpful here, when we see this, this is a warning to the whole church. So he's speaking to the church in general, knowing that the church, most churches, are made up of both believers and unbelievers. And we don't know sometimes who's who, right? Okay, so there's a mixture of those within this group. And here is the warning passages for everybody. And I believe that it's the true believers who heed the warnings, okay? So that's uh, one little insight here. And as I said, we'll see some of the answers to that as we cover the other warning passages as we go throughout the book. But we do also see a progression of intensity of these warnings. And here we see the first one, uh, drifting can be hazardous to your health. Verse 1, we see the warning itself not to drift. He says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Two words within this verse, pay careful attention and drift, are both nautical terms. Uh, let me read from William Barclay's commentary. He explains this. He says, prosecane can mean to moor a ship, and parain can be used of a ship 
which has been carelessly allowed to slip past a harbor or a haven because the mariner has forgotten to allow for the wind or the current or the tide. So then, this first verse could be very vividly translated, therefore we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. It is a vivid picture of a ship drifting to destruction because the pilot sleeps, similar to what we saw in the videos, right? That's the warning here. Pay careful attention so that you do not drift. We need to understand that drifting comes naturally. See, we're supposed to go against the flow. So going against the flow means there's effort. If you are not rowing or the motor's on or whatever, you're naturally in a river or in the ocean or whatever are going to go in the wrong way. Drifting comes naturally. Uh, this uh, same idea is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 47 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this same word uh, for paying careful attention. And we see the warning there as well, that we need to be serious about this, otherwise dire consequences take place. The sinful nature left alone will drift. If we just coast, we're not going to move towards God. And that's the, uh, the warning that he's making out here. Drifting comes naturally, and drifting is dangerous. Half-hearted religion is perilous. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say something like, you know, it's okay to believe and have a little religion, but you don't want to go overboard. You don't want to be fanatical, okay? Ah, they're just in the news this week. Uh, Joy Bahar, I don't even know who that is, some lady with a talk show or something. She mocks the vice president, Mike Pence, for listening to God's voice. Actually mocks him, claiming it's mental illness. It's okay to talk to God, but if you claim you hear, that's mental illness, is what she actually said. Listen, it is mental illness to think that God only wants us to tip our hat in his direction from time to time with a little religion, rather than total allegiance and absolute surrender to the creator of the universe. If there is a creator and he has a plan and he made us for a particular purpose, for us to say, I don't need to bother with him very often, is ludicrous. It's what I call practical atheism. Okay, practical atheism. The person who claims to believe in a God or a deity but lives their whole lives as if that's not the case. Psalm 14.1 actually says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, he wasn't saying that about atheists. Back in the ancient Near East, there probably weren't any atheists. Everybody believed in some kind of a God. He says the fool says in his heart, in the center of his being, meaning the person who maybe claims there is a God but lives their whole life as if there isn't, that's the fool. 
And that's what we're seeing here. The person drifting, not paying attention to their life, not seriously seeking after the Lord, is the one who is in danger, according to this passage. He says specifically, pay careful attention to the word. We must pay the most careful attention. It's in the superlative, the Greek word here. Uh, Therefore, to what we have heard. Definitely pointing back to what we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which we saw really reflects the New Testament. Pay careful attention to the Bible, to the Word of God. Jesus being the final and ultimate revelation of God, because he is God, he brought the message, and then the apostles and the eyewitnesses, they carefully wrote it down by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could know what God's Word is. And he's saying, pay the most careful attention to that. And I think that that would also include the Old Testament, the Bible. God gave us his word so that we could know who he is and what his plan is, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is false. Pay careful attention. You ever wonder uh, why the Bible is such a big book? Mine's actually bigger than most people's, right? Okay, Uh, that's just because I got a lot of study notes in this thing, okay? But the Bible is not a big book so that you can beat people over the head with it, right? Okay, no, the Bible is just the right size for a purpose, okay? You might have noticed, Elizabeth, can can I have my my helper come up here? You might have noticed uh, this uh, large pile of books right here that I borrowed from Paul Schultz, who uh, is a doctor, and, uh, and this is uh, actually, it looks like a large pile of books, right? It is just a small sampling of a subsection of medicine for doctors, okay? So nowhere near all the books that a doctor would need in order to be a good doctor, depending on whatever field of study they go into, Right? But why do we, they need so many books? So that they get it right, right? You want the doctors to have these big piles of books and to seriously dig into them and know them, don't you? Because you want them to get it right. Well, the Bible is just the right size so that we get it right. And God has called all believers to be lifelong learners of God's word. And so we're to dig into this book. We're to pay the most careful attention to what we have heard, to learn it and to seek to live it as well. And God is calling us to that so that we will get it right, so that we won't drift. The Bible is food for the soul. Don't be malnourished spiritually. This is tasty stuff, okay? Good food, better than steak. All right, there you go. All right, so first of all, we see the warning not to drift, and then secondly, we see the consequences of drifting. Verses two through 3a, he states, 
For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? There's the consequences. The cause of sin here is inattention. It says ignore or neglect. Amareo is the Greek word here to ignore or neglect so great a salvation. So we see here that that is the sin, the sin of inattention. This word is also used in Matthew 22, verse 5, where we see the parable of the wedding banquet and where the people who were invited, it says, paid no attention to the invitation and then suffered the dire consequences thereafter. And so we see here the consequences of drifting. Uh, This is a conditional sentence uh, with the word how, or pos in the Greek, the word how, which really uh, is a rhetorical, makes it a rhetorical question with the force of a strong negative. What he's really saying is we shall in no way escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And so that is the consequences that he's bringing out here. Uh, Interesting, back to verse 2, we see that all punishment, uh, all disobedience is punished. Notice what he says. And by the way, verse 2 is a contrast to verse 3. We'll see this all the way through the book of Hebrews. He's contrasting the way it was under the old covenant and how much greater it is true in the new covenant, okay? And here we see the same thing. Verse two, for since the message spoken through angels was binding, he's referring there to the reception of the law of Moses. Apparently, according to this verse, as well as um, Second Temple Judaism thought, they believed that angels had something to do with bringing the law to Moses, okay? And this passage verifies that so that is in fact how it worked but he's saying there that since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment if you read the old testament you see if you do this this is the punishment for that you know occurrence so every part is disobeyed therefore then how shall we escape so even greater under the new covenant that we should expect this but i wanted to point out here all disobedience is punished now in as far as the idea of eternal punishment either the self or the substitute experiences the punishment okay eternal punishment in hell comes to either the self or the substitute. You see, God, his standard is perfection. Therefore, if we don't come to him with that perfect standard, being perfect ourselves, we will suffer the eternal punishment of hell. Now, is anybody here perfect? That's serious. Okay, Therefore, we want to go to option two, okay? Because God in his holiness must and will punish all sin, okay? Either we experience that punishment ourselves in hell or because God is also loving and good and has provided a substitute in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty we were supposed to pay 
when he was nailed on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. If you have repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as your, uh, as your savior and outwardly expressing that in baptism, being truly born again, a born again believer, you've ex- you're trusting in Jesus as your substitute, okay? He paid the penalty. But notice, all sin gets punished. Either Jesus experiences the punishment in our place or we pay the punishment at the end of the, when the, the, the day of judgment takes place. So that's, that's serious, but all disobedience is punished. By the way, though, I think we can also say that even in a temporal sense, God sometimes brings about that punishment in this life. Temporally, uh, as punishment for unbelievers, sometimes God punishes unbelievers in this life. Sometimes whole nations get punished. We see this very clearly in the scriptures. But also for believers, sometimes, and I prefer to use the word discipline, and I think in the, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it uses that term instead, rather than punishment, because if you're a true believer, God is no longer your judge, according to John chapter 5, God is no longer your judge. But if you're a true believer, you've been adopted into the family, and God is your father. And as father, he will discipline his kids at times. So the fear of God should be there for all of us. This is a warning to the whole church. Some believers, some unbelievers, but you know, this is how it applies. But we do see, because God is holy, All sin is punished, but because he's good, he's provided a substitute. But if we, even as believers, continue to to drift and live in that sinful kind of style, we can expect God to bring about this discipline. In fact, if you're not being disciplined, according to Hebrews chapter 12, when we get to there, we'll go into this more detail. In Hebrews chapter 12, that's evidence you're not one of his kids. Have you ever wondered, why do I always get caught when nobody else does? It's because God loves you, okay? So, so we see here, though, this idea of punishment. And he says, okay, so what we need to recognize here is that he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Old covenant, this is true. Therefore, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Warren Wiersbe in his commentary, uh, comments on this. He says, I have often told the story of the pastor who preached a series of sermons on the sins of the saints. He was reprimanded by a member of the church. After all, said the member, sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the lives of other people. Yes, replied the pastor, it's worse. We have the idea that believers today under grace can escape the chastening hand of God that was so evident under law. But to whom much is given, much shall be required. We need to be careful that we heed this warning. Don't drift, okay? Because of so great a salvation, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Have you ever thought about salvation? I mean, when you understand the whole picture of this, it is amazing how great this salvation is. The Bible actually uses 
salvation or to be saved in the verb in three different tenses, okay? So full salvation encompasses all three tenses. It speaks of how we were saved in a point of time, at a point of time. That's referring to justification. An example of that is in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. You have been saved, point in time, in the past, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, okay? But the Bible also speaks of our being saved, present, ongoing tense, what we call sanctification, okay? This uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 is an example of that. But it's also referred to in a future sense, that we will be or shall be saved. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10 gives this future tense. Probably, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, when he spoke of the angels as ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, this is kind of focusing on the future tense, isn't it? What we call glorification. See, God, when he set this thing up, by the way, he is brilliant, right? Okay, so he set this thing up. Salvation, we are saved from the penalty of sin, past tense, justification, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved from the, from the power of sin, present tense, sanctification, as we seek the Lord, Romans 6 brings this out. And we're saved from the very presence of sin in the future, glorification, when we go to be with the Lord. Okay, this is a great salvation. And it's all by grace. Past, present, and future. It's all by grace, not by works. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So this whole deal is all by the grace of God. Wow. (laughs) Well, anyway, okay. So consequences of drifting. You see how he's trying to make this point here, okay? In light of the new covenant, in light of what Jesus has done for us, it's really dumb to drift. We've got to be careful. We've got to pay attention to this, okay? So then we see, He finishes this idea with evidence, okay, to keep you on track. You see, he's referring to these Jewish believers who are being tempted to go back to Judaism because of the persecution. He's encouraging them with Jesus. He's superior. And then he's reminding them here with four different reminders of the evidence God had given them to prove to them that this is real that Jesus is the way, he is alive, all of that, okay? He's reminding them so that they won't drift. That's why he's doing this, okay? And notice here we also see four specific ways that the gospel is superior to the law of Moses. And so in light of that, he's revealing the truthfulness of the gospel. He starts, well, let's read this, okay? He says, this salvation, the really great one, Okay. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We see these. First of all, the gospel of salvation was announced by Jesus, which was first announced by the Lord. He's reminding him again. He's already been talking about Jesus all the way through. By the way, the book of Hebrews is going to talk about Jesus a lot, okay? Okay, so he's reminding them. They're like, oh, yeah, 
Jesus, you are wonderful. You're the one that first announced this good news. And Jesus was the complete and full revelation of God because he is God. And he was the complete revelation of God and his plan because he is the plan. Okay? So they're reminded, oh, yeah, Jesus. And then he says, and the gospel was verified by eyewitness accounts. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now notice here, the author of Hebrews is admitting he wasn't one of the eyewitnesses. But he's met the eyewitnesses and is reminding them that they've met the eyewitnesses, that the eyewitness account is still valid for them. What's interesting about this, and we'll see this in Luke as well, a good example of this. In fact, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, We see that he's admitting, Luke admits it as well, that he's not an eyewitness. If you were going to make this thing up because you wanted to deceive people to get them to start following you, you would not have said, and I wasn't even around. You would have probably made it up saying, and I was there, and I saw this and that and the other, and whatever, okay, right? This is evidence that he's telling the truth. But look at what he says. Look at Luke chapter 1. By the way, Luke, he wrote the, the, the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, he says some, some things very similar to this. We see that Luke, though he wasn't at the beginning with the apostles, later on in the book of Acts, He talks what we see as called the we passages. He actually traveled with the Apostle Paul and saw some of these incredible things as an eyewitness. But look at how he says he wrote the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Notice he's getting this from them, but he's admitting he was not one of the eyewitnesses. Verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he is very meticulous. Luke was by far the most educated of all the writers of the New Testament. And he's writing an orderly account, the things that he says. When we look at this evidence from the eyewitnesses, the, what we see, what we discover is that the early written witness, number one, of these eyewitnesses, confirmed even by the opposition, okay, the opposition, we have first century documents from both Roman and Jewish sources that were antagonistic towards Christianity, but admitted certain things. They admit that there was a man named Jesus who gathered a group of followers, who performed miracles, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and on the third day his body was missing. They verify those facts. The eyewitnesses also say, we saw these things. So confirmed by opposition uh, with the early written witness demands one of two things. Either we have a mass conspiracy. Luke's lying to make some money off the deal. (laughs) 
And the apostles were lying, even though they all got killed for their lie. Mass conspiracy, or they're actually giving a true account of what actually happened. The idea of myth and legend creeping in simply evaporates from the eyewitness. If you're interested, uh, and, and I am fascinated by this stuff, but I don't have time to go into it, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. This is an incredibly uh, detailed resource of all the massive information we have of the eyewitness accounts. That that Once again, this is the way it is. This really happened. He's reminding them, you talked to the eyewitnesses. You heard. Remember what you heard, okay? Okay. Uh, So the gospel was verified by eyewitness accounts. Then we see that the gospel was authenticated by signs, wonders, and miracles. Verse 4, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. He's reminding them, remember when you saw that miracle? Remember when you experienced that sign? Remember when you, it was verified to you in a miraculous way that this stuff is real? It really happened? You remember that? And they're going, oh, yeah, I remember, okay? And that's, so they use that. Now, here's the question, though. Can we still use this as evidence? Can we still use this to remind us of how great a salvation we have that we do not want to neglect it because we've seen signs and wonders and miracles are miracles for today, okay? And though I don't have time to go into this, I actually did go into this in great detail in my class, Historical Theology, and some more detail at least in that, but I will just want you to say, look these verses up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 through 12, specifically says, that the supernatural, powerful gifts will cease, but it also says when they'll cease. And he says it very clearly, it's when Jesus comes back. In other words, until Jesus comes back, we can expect to see these signs and wonders and various miracles. We don't get to decide, God gets to decide, but they are for today. Acts chapter two, verses 16 through 21, through 20, or through 21, uh, Peter is also addressing the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And he says, he speaks of these incredible signs and wonders and and prophecy and so forth that it's going to be common to the church, that it's going to be your handmaids and servants and your men and your women and your old men and so forth, that they're going to dream dreams and this and that, that this is common, that this is normal Christianity is how he presents it. And we can expect that today, if you are interested in another book. You know, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but I love books. Okay. Because I love hearing what other people, you know, have dug into God's word and and so forth. The Kingdom and the Power. This is a great book that reveals uh, several different scholars wrote it to show that this stuff is for today. Wayne Grudem's one of them. Uh, You know, really, really good uh, uh, resource to show that these things are for today. We should expect them. Now, granted, sometimes Christians can get carried away and perhaps pendulum swing over and get a little weird, okay? You know, a little overboard on it, maybe going beyond what the Scriptures teach, 
And, you know, that's at least they're excited about it. You know, that's one thing. But if you're interested, I have another book, um, Charisma versus Charismania by Chuck Smith. I think he presents a good, balanced perspective. Same with the uh, kingdom and the power. This idea that God does still do this kind of stuff today, okay? And, uh, in fact, you know, because the last two weeks we've talked about angels because it's been in the passage the last two two, weeks. uh, messages about angels, and I've asked people to share with me their stories of angels. I have heard some great testimonies. If we, instead of having church, decided to have, you know, let's have all of us just share our testimonies about the miraculous and what God has done in our lives that cannot be explained other than there is a God, we'd be here all day long, okay? I, and I have enjoyed hearing the stories. Let me just tell you one that I thought topped them all. Jill Kent, okay, she says, I got to tell you my angel story. Now, I'm going to shrink it down, and I hope I do her story justice. But this is what happened to her, okay? She's driving in a car with a friend. Their car goes, um, hits rocks and stuff or whatever, goes out of control. They are heading towards a giant tree at a very fast pace, and both of them actually looked at each other, and they said something to the effect of, I guess we're going home. I mean, it looked like this was the end. Then all of a sudden, they found themselves still in the car with the car wedged in between two of the two trees, okay? And they looked at each other, and they said, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, we're okay. Said, I didn't even feel any jerk. What, what in the world happened? Well, they, they get out of the car, and they see they're in between two trees. They see the scratch marks on the car are perpendicular rather than horizontal. And that there's no path. They see the tracks of the car, and then the tracks stop way back here. The car's way over here in between two trees with no tracks. Clearly, Sultan picked them up, set them down in the, between the trees. Isn't that cool? I mean, and I know Jill isn't lying. This is this God does this kind of stuff, okay? The gospel. And so if Jill maybe was, you know, thinking about, you know, you know, we all drift a little bit, and she's not. I'm not saying that. But, but you know, she, just a reminder. Remember that time? Oh, yeah. Okay. Stop the drifting, right? Okay, that's what they're doing here. Remind them this kind of stuff is for today. God wants us to have these kind of stories, in our lives. And then the second question, can miracles work in evangelism? Can God use this? Because it seems that they even came to Christ through seeing these signs, wonders, and miracles. And I would answer the Bible would also indicate yes. Okay? Look at Mark chapter 16, verse 16 through 20. Here we see, this is Mark's rendition of the Great Commission. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, he says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Now, you can imagine that some, there are some churches that kind of take this a little overboard. you got people handling snakes and that kind of thing. And he never says, do this. We're not supposed to 
test God. God's the one that gets to decide when the miracles happen, okay? Uh, and so we shouldn't test him. But we do have an account like Paul got bit by a snake, didn't, didn't, hap- didn't hurt him at all in the book of Acts and so forth. So we see this kind of stuff happening. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. See that? He confirmed his word by the sign. The word is what's important, that they hear the message of the gospel, but sometimes God confirms that with the miraculous. Look at Acts chapter eight. Here's an example of this. Acts chapter eight, we see in verses four through eight, this is persecution takes place before Paul gets saved. He's persecuting the church, and they scatter because of that. Look at 8, verse 4. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I love that. They, they didn't allow the persecution to, to, to make them close their mouths, okay? Wherever they went, they preached the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, Philip, it's important for us to understand here, Philip is not an apostle. He's not even a pastor. He's a deacon, according to Acts chapter 6. That guy, Philip, when the crowds heard Philip, so he preached the message, and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said, like what our passages say. Pay the most careful attention. Remember, God testified to it with the signs, wonders, and various miracles. These guys kind of make sense, right? You hear the message, you see people healed, you go, wow, maybe I should pay attention to what he's saying, right? The word is more important than the miracles, but they go together, and that's what we're seeing is being appealed to by the author of Hebrews. Remember these things. I believe that this is how we're going to reach the Muslims, even in our community. I don't think the primary way of reaching them is to give them free stuff and just be nice. You can do that. That's okay. But I don't think that's going to reach them. I think it's going to take the miraculous. It's going to take dreams. When Muslims they, they are having this throughout the world. They are having dreams of Jesus Christ saying to them, you need to follow me, and then they begin to follow him even in the midst of persecution. Just read an account of that uh, in, uh, in Iraq. No, it was in Syria uh, just this last week. So that's what's going to take to bring these people, to bring Muslims, to bring atheists. When I was uh, going to uh, school in Orlando, I, I had to do my... Uh, uh, some extra work to get my teacher's certificate, okay, to be able to teach. And I was going to school in Orlando, uh, University of Central Florida, and I had to take two political science classes, okay, while I was there. My professor, I had him for both classes, was a Marxist atheist. True story, okay? Marxist atheist, okay, which, by the way, we need to realize our country is in serious trouble especially our universities. Okay, well, I'm, anyway, but I became friends with him because I was a little older than the rest of the students and so forth. So we became friends. We talked a lot. In fact, by the second class, he would almost regularly during class ask, he'd do his teaching and then he'd say, by the way, Larry, what's the Christian perspective on this? Seriously. Now, some of this stuff 
something the Bible doesn't even address, you know. But I would just preach the gospel. <laughs> so I did. I preached the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I told him how to be saved in that class. But he, he would, so he invited me to be, because we became friends. Well, that second class was on Monday nights. It was a three-hour class every Monday night. Sunday morning, I woke up and I had this incredible impression from God that there was something wrong with his son. And and so I began to pray and I even asked our church. Our church prayed for my professor's son. I didn't even know if he had a kid or not, but that, that that was my impression. So I prayed for his son. And I could have been wrong. You know, we get impressions, and sometimes we're wrong with our impressions, right? But I, but I really felt strongly about this. So we prayed. Then Monday night, I go to class, and the fellow, uh, he says, class is canceled. So I walked up to him, and I said, why are you canceling the class? And he said, it's personal reasons of the professor. And I stared right at him, and I said, listen, I believe God told me that there is something wrong with his son yesterday, and we even prayed for him. Why are you canceling the class? His eyes just big went, what? Because he knew. I didn't know anything about this. He says, well, his wife had a miscarriage, and it was his son. You know, how did I know? Well, I talked to him afterwards, and because we were friends, and because he knew that I had even said this to the fellow, that I'm not making this up. And, I, and we talked about this afterwards, and I, and I asked him, I said, how do you as an atheist explain this kind of thing? And he looked at me and he said, I don't have an explanation. That was his honest answer. I believe God will use this kind of thing to draw people that are harder than you can imagine because he cares about them, wants them in the kingdom. So miracles can and will be used in evangelism, I believe especially in the last days. By the way, that Acts chapter 2 passage, it says in the last days these things will happen. Have we passed the last days? Not yet, huh? So we can expect these things to happen. Now, finally, he says, and the gospel was testified by gifts of the Spirit uh, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God gets to decide who gets what gifts. He has the plan. We just get in on the plan. By the way, the first thing you want to do when you get saved is humble yourself, okay? It's a surrender. It's not a, okay, you convince me, I'll go ahead and, you know, tip my hat to you. No, it is a total surrender. You're right, I'm wrong. What do you want me to do? <laughs> and God has a plan. Each of us has a part to play in advancing the kingdom. I have a prayer guide for prodigals that I pray through. And, and just this morning, this prayer number 11 came up. Lord, reveal to my son how valuable and significant his life is. Give him a vision for his purpose in the world and show him the possibilities for his future. Through you, he can do all things. That's what God wants for every single person here. You've probably heard, maybe even from yourself, you're no good, you're worthless, you can't really help things. Other people are good for that. God has a plan for each and every one of us that no one else can fulfill. A part to play in advancing the kingdom of God. And when the church is functioning properly, people are regularly getting saved. So here's the question. 
Are you doing your part or have you been drifting? Let me finish with Warren Wiersbe's commentary again. He says, the next time you sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, recall that the composer, Robert Robinson, was converted under the mighty preaching of George Whitfield, but that later he drifted from the Lord. He had been greatly used as a pastor, but neglect of spiritual things led him astray. In an attempt to find peace, he began to travel. During one of his journeys, he met a young woman who was evidently very spiritually minded. What do you think of this hymn I've been reading? She asked Robinson, handing him the book. It was his own hymn. He tried to avoid her question, but it was hopeless, for the Lord was speaking to him. Finally, he broke down and confessed who he was and how he had been living away from the Lord. But these streams of mercy are still flowing, the woman assured him. And through her encouragement, Robinson was restored to fellowship with the Lord. Isn't that a great, you know, I mean, that, there's, that's amazing. That's what happened to that guy, the, the writer of that hymn. God has a plan for all of us. He's giving us this warning, though. Pay careful attention to what you've heard. Don't drift. It's dangerous. And life is never better than when you follow God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's pray. Father, we confess that none of us have arrived yet, that there are times in each of our lives where we drift and we just neglect the things of God and we say we're sorry. We want to change, but we can't do this in our own strength. We, we can't paddle. We need your motor. Turn us around, Holy Spirit, so that we can go against the flow. Help us to dig into your word daily and never neglect it. Help us to see this warning as real, but also to focus on the great salvation we've received. To say yes and be reminded of the things that you've done in our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters that are amazing. You are real. And we want to follow you afresh. And thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, maybe they know about you and they know a little bit of you, but they're on the outside looking in. Draw them into yourself. Help them to say, Yes, total surrender to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our great God.